When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. This month, we're literally getting inside our genes as we explore chromosomes through a three-dimensional virtual reality art, music and science project. It's fantastic because I've seen it in two dimensions before where you could drag and move the molecules around, but it is literally entering a new dimension. Plus, researchers are turning to bees, trees and more in search of new genetic systems and our gene of the month has been around for a while. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for June 2017 with me, Dr Katani, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I recently headed up to Cambridge to chair a fascinating event entitled Chromos, run by the Babraham Institute, a research institute nestling in the countryside just outside the city. This was no ordinary evening. We were invited to step right inside the human genome, using virtual reality headsets to experience a writhing, dancing world of DNA, created by visual artist Andy Lomas, using real data about three-dimensional chromosome structure generated from experiments by the Institute scientists. In addition, leading electronic musician Max Cooper created an atmospheric soundtrack inspired by the science and the visualisation. That's the music you can hear in the background. Before the event got started, I caught up with Mikhail Spivakov and Chilla Varnay from the Babraham Institute to find out how this unusual collaboration came to life. The idea was that the analysis of the three-dimensional structure of the DNA and how the DNA is packaged in the nucleus they are extremely important for understanding how cells you know, use the DNA to do what they need to do. But it's also extremely visually appealing. And we felt that it would be a great opportunity to kind of bridge our science with the art uh, to actually tell people a little bit more and maybe give them a bit more of a feel for how the DNA is and what it is. So how did you go about trying to create this art? Because it's not just visual art, is it? It's, it's music as well. So in fact, it started from my reading an interview with Max Cooper, where he mentioned that he has a PhD in computational biology. And I was really excited, and I thought, actually, he must be the ideal person to do this kind of stuff with. So I contacted him via Twitter, and uh, he got really excited. We had him over to the Babraham Institute, and it's then that we decided to really 
create a project which is not just music about the DNA, music inspired by DNA, but also the video. And that's when Max got Andy involved, who he's been working with on a number of occasions. And it turned into a music video project about the DNA and, and how the DNA is arranged in the nucleus. And where did the virtual reality component come in? Because it's absolutely fantastic. I've had a go at flying through all this data. That was entirely Andy's idea. So we commissioned Andy and Max to to make a a music video for us. And then at one of our meetings, Andy showed up with a VR kit and uh, we could all immerse ourselves in this uh, virtual reality looking at the, the molecule in three dimensions. It's like being in the Matrix. You've got all these twisting things in space. You can put yourself right inside it and see all these uh, coils moving around. What is it that we're looking at when we're inside that environment? So what we are looking at is uh, the three-dimensional structure of DNA as it was uh, in the nucleus of the cell. And we can see the actual chromosomes moving individually. And apart from this, we can also see red hotspots where there are active genes of, the, uh, of our, our DNA. And uh, they form various clusters. And that's where all the, the, the genes are being read as recipes to make proteins for the cell. And this is your actual data from the lab. What, what is that data? Where have you got it from? Uh, I got this data from experiments that uh, my colleagues uh, do at the Babraham Institute. What uh, the, the data comes from is effectively uh, contact information about the DNA. So we have a list of contacts about which parts of the DNA is in contact which, uh, with which other parts of the DNA. And using that information, my job is to reconstruct what the, the, the likely shape of the chromosomes were or was in the, the, the nucleus of the cell. And as a scientist, how do you feel when you're standing in that virtual environment and looking at your work spinning around you? It's fantastic because I've seen it in two dimensions before or in various other pieces of software where you could drag and move the molecules around. But uh, it is literally entering a new dimension. Chilla Varnai and before her, Mikhail Spivakov from the Babraham Institute. Visual artist Andy Lomas used Unreal, a virtual reality gaming engine usually used to make lifelike shoot-em-ups and other games, to turn all this scientific data into three-dimensional virtual reality. But how did he actually start doing it? Uh, that's a good question, and I, I was wondering the same myself when I started this project. So we got all these files, just genuine files from simulations that uh, Chiller's been running, and I, I haven't used Unreal that much, but I just thought, OK, this game engine technology, it should be able to read in this data. You should be able to write code that can directly read the, the simulation files. And what can we then do with it? And if we put it in that environment, we can hopefully look at things in different ways, try things out, and basically we're almost like an environment to experiment with things. So it, I was learning, to be honest, doing it. I thought it should work. I wanted to have something that was interactive, I guess most of the work I've done in the past has been in film and visual effects where you really know what you're doing. You're almost like you've got a storyboard, you know exactly what the target is, and you're often doing things that take a very, very long time. Where I wanted to have something that allowed us to try all sorts of things out really quickly, which is why we wanted to try the, use this game technology. Um, so it was a bit of an experiment, and we wrote a lot of code which just reads these files, reads them into memory, and builds the geometry based out of the data. 
So this isn't like you've got a, a string of DNA and you're animating it to do what you want. You're actually taking real data from the experiments and just throwing it into this computer engine and seeing what it throws back at you. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's real data from uh, Chiller's research work on trying to reconstruct the shape of, of the nucleus of the DNA and the chromosomes. So it's actually just real files from her written out from these simulations she's running, which is three, like, three-dimensional data. It's like positions of you know, the various locations on the chromosomes and positions over time in space. So it is already three-dimensional. But then I was having to turn that into like, visible geometry and also animating geometry. I guess when we came to the Institute and had a look at uh, their work, what they were generally showing us was the final shapes, which, of course, is what the research is really trying to reconstruct. And what we were trying to explore in this work was, like, how were they getting to those shapes? How are they reconstructing this geometry? And actually, I don't think before they'd actually looked at almost the data during the simulation. They were always looking at things at the end of the simulation. So it's sort of how did we get here? Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's sort of the process. And I think it was almost like musical, saying that because they do these simulations that go through different phases. So just visually, it's interesting. I mean, it's, and it's hopefully just tells the story of almost like a discovery. You're going from something which is just this perfect mathematical, but just almost this arbitrary sort of structure to start with, because we you know, really don't know what the real shapes of the nucleus of the chromosomes are. And then through all these forces, these constraints, things pulling things towards each other which need to be close to each other by the end. And just simulating almost literally, you heat it up to a ridiculous temperature so everything moves around with all this thermal noise and then gradually cools down. And as it cools down, it sort of almost solidifies hopefully into the right shape. And it's almost like there's a beauty to that. It's almost like you'd see it as a a peat, almost like a work in different movements. (laughs) It is an incredible thing to see you because when you look at the the video or indeed in the virtual reality simulation, you see this big column of sort of almost like strings stacked up mm-hmm. in a in a spiral, and then it starts to go crazy. It's dancing all over the place, and then slows down and solidifies into a sort of uh, a, a fluffy blob. Yeah. I guess mm-hmm. would be the the best way mm-hmm. of putting it. How did you decide to turn that into a virtual reality environment that people could actually step inside and explore? Uh, to be honest, almost just because we could. I mean, our big thing with this was let's try this out in Unreal so we can experiment with it quickly, so that we can actually try things out, so we can look at what's in the data in a three-dimensional space interactively. And Unreal just has the opportunity to do things in virtual reality because it's the, one of the main, two main game engine pieces of software used to create top-end games, including virtual reality games. So it just has a VR preview mode, and I have a virtual reality headset which I've been playing with and trying things out with uh, and we just tried it out just like okay well, this should work we should just be able to hit VR preview and see and it, just how much you spatially understand the structure by it being in VR actually really surprised me even though I've done quite a number of things in VR before and then we sort of then reworked it and turned this into a more interactive thing, particularly thinking like how would you want to maybe visualise things, understand things, uh, look at chromosome colours, switch chromosome colours off, look at activation zones. It was like what would I want to explore in the, the set? But yeah, the first thing was we could just could hit that button, VR preview, and have a look at it. And we looked at it and we went, OK, yeah, that's, cool. that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As an ex-scientist whose field was this kind of thing, I was really fascinated by 
the going from the straight line of DNA to this sort of writhing library of genes and how they're all interacting and mm-hmm. thinking about it in a three-dimensional way. When I was a scientist, there weren't these kind of tools. And mm-hmm. what you've done here is an art project, but could we develop these kind of tools for scientists? I think it would be incredible to sit inside my data and you know, virtually pick it apart, see it in space around me. Uh, I think absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, we've, we have started talking with people at the Babraham Institutes uh, exactly about that. Of, first, wouldn't this be great to take much further as an art science project for science fairs and things like that? And also for the genuine research, yeah, if you're actually generating these structures, particularly if you're interested in questions like what is the, you know, where are the locations of activation? Is the act locations really, you know, on the interfaces between the different chromosomes and things like that. Actually, spatially understanding the structure, when it's a really complex, it was this fluffy, really complex shape, it's a very, very difficult structure to understand by just looking at, like, a picture on a, t- on, on a computer screen. And when you, work, you see it in VR, that it feels like it is there in the room with you gives you just intuitively so much deeper understanding of that structure. That I think particularly it's those really complex forms like these folded chromosomes where that's really important. And, of course, the sci-fi nerd in me loves the idea of you see the films, the scientists kind of go, and the data appears like hovering over this table. Are we going to get there? Are we going to get to be able to like probe our scientific data in three dimensions? I'd love that. Uh, I guess so. I guess one thing is because we are genuinely using the real science data, it does take about two minutes to start up at the beginning as it loads all that data files. So big data takes quite a long time. And game technology and things like the graphics cards and computers, things like that, now have this incredible amount of power to, to visualise really, really complex, difficult spatial data sets. So it's almost like you're riding on top of the people playing first-person shooters to hopefully do real science. Andy Lomas. And the piece you heard earlier was called Chromos by Max Cooper. That's the title track of his new EP, Inspired by the Project, and it's available now on iTunes. There are also a couple of amazing videos on YouTube combining Max's music and Andy's visuals. So head to the podcast page at nakedscientist.com genetics to find links to those, or just search online for Max Cooper Chromos. That's C-H-R-O-M-O-S. <laughs> This is the Naked Genetics Podcast with me, Katani. Coming up later, our gene of the month is more than a little ancient. But first, regular listeners will remember that a couple of months ago I went to the joint spring meeting of the Genetic Society, the British Society for Developmental Biology and the British Society for Cell Biology, held at the University of Warwick. One strand of talks explored so-called newly tractable systems, new model organisms that geneticists are finally able to study for the first time flippantly summarised as bees and trees. To get the buzz about our insect friends, I chatted to Paul Hurd from Queen Mary University of London. So what fascinates me, I guess, are honeybees. Uh, They fascinate me for a number of reasons. They're important pollinators. They're important for maintaining genetic diversity in flowering plants. And plants, of course, are required for all animal life because they fix carbon from the atmosphere and produce carbohydrate. So they occupy a pretty crucial place in ecosystems. From a kind of genetic point of view, they're interesting because a bee genome, a bee larva, doesn't 
just have the capacity to become a bee, it can become three different types of bee. And the question is, how is it that one genome can become three different animals? What is it that, that enables that to happen? So this is more complex than in humans we have males and females. This is much more complicated than that. I think it probably is more complicated. So obviously in humans we all come from a zygote and that zygote has the potential to form 200 or so different cell types. For bees, that same zygote has the potential to form 200 different cell types but wrapped up in three very different organisms. So I think it is more complicated, yes. So introduce me to the different characters in the honeybee hive. Who do we have in there? So top of the pile is queen bee. Queen bee is the largest insect in a hive. She's the reproductive female. She can lay fertilised or unfertilised eggs. If she lays an unfertilised egg, the resultant larvae becomes a male, which is also reproductive. If she lays a fertilised egg, which is what she tends to do most of, that larvae will grow and develop into a, into a non-reproductive female worker bee. So two female bees in a hive, one can reproduce the queen, one can't reproduce the worker. And what do we know about what's going on in terms of the, the genes, the control of the genes that are doing this sort of switch and controlling these different types of bees? So this is what we're interested in looking at. Honeybee caste determination, whether you become a queen or a worker, is dependent on diet. So what the larvae he eats within the first three, four days of it hatching actually determines what it will become as an adult. If the larvae eats royal jelly, a specialised substance, a nutritional substance produced ironically by the workers, the larvae develops into a queen. If the larvae is fed the boring, carbohydrate-rich nectar pollen, then she will become a worker. This is a switch that's affecting the outcome, basically based on diet. That seems quite strange to determine something as important as are you going to be able to reproduce in your life or not? Absolutely. I mean, bees really are what they eat. There has never been a clearer example of, of an organism really is what it eats. And the reason why we're interested in this is because because the two bees are genetically identical but what they eat changes what they become we think this is happening at an epigenetic level the layer of information on top of the genes which controls genomic output so there's increasing interest in humans about how the environment the things we do the things we're exposed to the things we eat influence how our genes are turned on and off this sort of layer of, of tags and switches so what do we know about how that's happening in bees that's making this switch between queen or, or worker we don't really know that's one of the things that we're looking at but to some extent the components of royal jelly do at least give the impression that it's a pretty good epigenetic diet so there are things within that diet that we think will be directly affecting gene expression the switching on and off of genes and it's that that we're trying to tease apart there are some health food shops that will sell you royal jelly and stuff like that. I mean, people will eat it and say, oh, it must be good for my health. That could actually be concerning if it's making that sort of switch. I think royal jelly should definitely come with a health warning. I would certainly not eat it. Um, I've seen how it can change bee development from one organism into another. So I, I would treat it with caution. 
Here at the spring meeting, we've just heard a series of talks about people who are looking at other unusual insect systems where there are different almost varieties or castes of insects. Tell me about some of those. So there are a number of hymenoptera that, that have this caste-based system. The other obvious one are ants. Ants work in a slightly different way in that there's no nutritional difference. It's thought that it's pheromone chemical signaling that determines choice of caste in ants. Uh, bumblebees it also seems to be a chemical-based system rather than a nutritional-based system. And finally, termites... And as we saw in the talk today, nobody really knows the ecology of, of termite caste differentiation. So what thing they all have in common is that they're all eusocial. So eusocial insects have this caste-determining system because of kin selection, they're all genetically related, and so the hive as a whole looks after the one reproductive queen for the sake of the whole colony. So it's all these organisms, they're all genetically the same, but they're putting themselves into different roles and jobs to support the overall structure of that society. Yeah, so it's a classic case of E.O. Wilson's kin selection theory where because of the genetic relatedness of all the organisms within the hive, they act as one superorganism for the good of the one reproductive animal within that colony. I love JVS Haldane's quote that he'd be prepared to lay down his life for something like two brothers or eight cousins. <laughs> I guess it's that on a grand scale. Absolutely, on a kind of 50,000 scale. What do we still really need to know? What are the really burning questions? I think the really burning question is, is still a fundamental one, which is, which is how can a genome... If a genome is the book of instructions, how is it that that book of instructions can be read and interpreted in multiple different ways in response to various environmental cues? And I think that's the fundamental question in honeybees. I think the other question in honeybees that's kind of related is what happens to honeybees when their food is contaminated, if you like, with pesticide? And how pesticides that are ingested by honeybees change their physiology and behaviour? And I think that's also a big question in the field. And this is such a big issue in the environmental world with the neonicotinoid pesticides and the, the concern that if we run out of bees, we run out of food. Absolutely. So there's, it's thought that, that with the current decline in honeybee colonies, then there will be, at some stage, the inability to supply humans with food. And so it's a crucial question. And a lot of great neonicotinoid work has, has been done out of the UK from Jerry Wright in Newcastle that showed, ironically, bees are actually addicted to neonicotinoid-treated plants because nobody ever thought that a neonicotinoid, which is an agonist of nicotine, may cause bees to become addicted to the pesticide. And so she showed in a great piece of work that, that bees will always feed on neonicotinoid-treated pollen versus non-neonicotinoid-treated pollen because the poor bees are addicted to nicotine. And one final question. Your lab keeps honeybees, you work on honeybees. Do you get honey out of them? Uh, we do get honey out of them. East London honey is the best honey. I can recommend any East London honey you see. is definitely worth buying. Everybody has flowers in their window boxes, in their nicely manicured gardens. So in actual fact, city bees are probably the happiest bees in the UK. Paul Hurd from Queen Mary University of London. From flying insects to the trees they buzz around, scientists are turning to genetics to solve one of the most pressing problems affecting UK trees today, infectious diseases, and particularly a nasty fungus known as ash dieback. Richard Bugs, lead researcher at the Royal Botanic Garden in Kew, explained the root, I'm sorry, of the problem. 
In 2012, ash dieback was found in woodlands in Britain for the first time, and it had come here from Europe, and we'd seen it actually slowly progressing across Europe over several years. And when it arrived in the UK, we, our government decided to fund quite a lot of research into what we could do about ash dieback. And one of the things that I've been doing is working on the ash trees themselves and sequencing their genome to try to find genes that could be responsible for their interaction with the fungus. And we're hoping that we might be able to breed trees in the future that have uh, resistance to the fungus. Let's backtrack a little bit. So what causes ash dieback and how is it spread? Ash dieback is caused by the fungus Hymenoscyphus fraxineus, which is native to Japan and eastern China. Uh, We're not quite sure how it got over here, um, but here it's much more pathogenic against our trees than it is against ash trees in Japan and China, which is why we have a problem. And trees don't kind of get up and move around. They don't transmit pathogens in the same way that animals might. How is it spread then from tree to tree? It's spread by spores, which infect leaves as they're growing. And then when the leaves drop off the trees, um, on the forest floor, you get little mushrooms coming out of the decomposing leaves. And those spread the spores that then go go off and and infect other other trees. So how are you trying to map the genetics of the ash trees to try and figure out how they are interacting with this fungus? It's relatively easy now to sequence a new genome. And so we've, we've done that for ash. It took us a couple of years. We've, we've published that very recently. We're taking two approaches to identify genes for low susceptibility to ash dieback in ash trees. One is to look at other ash species from around the world, particularly ones from China and Japan, which seem to have natural resistance to ash dieback. And we're using a phylogenetic approach with them. So we've sequenced the genome of every tree, every ash species from around the world that we can get hold of. And we're drawing a phylogenetic tree for every gene in the genome and looking for those genes which have a gene tree that fits with the pattern of susceptibility or or zero susceptibility in the, the whole genus, the whole ash genus among all of these species to try to identify uh, genes for low susceptibility. So you're trying to look for kind of suspect genes that always turn up in the populations that are resistant to the fungus and seem to be somehow missing in the populations that are susceptible to it. Yes, variants of genes in different species of ash, yeah. What's the other approach that you're trying to take? The other approach is that uh, forest research back in 2012 planted out loads of ash trees, actually 144,000 ash trees, in trials across the southeast of England. And those trees have now been screened for five years against um, inoculum pressure from the spores of ash dieback. And lots of them have died, but some have survived. And so that enables us to pick out British ash trees that seem to have low susceptibility. And what we would like to do if we get funding is to do a genome-wide association study on them to try and find the genes within British ash populations for low susceptibility to ash dieback. You're starting to find these British ash trees that are a bit more hardy, can withstand the infection. Can't you just start breeding them and, you know, breed them all over the place? That is exactly what we'd like to do. But we can accelerate that process if we've identified the particular genes involved 
and then we can do marker-assisted breeding or another approach is uh, genomic prediction uh, where we don't have to find the actual genes but we can look at the, the genetic profile of trees which have higher resistance. And that can accelerate breeding. Because, of course, breeding trees is a very long process. because they <laughs> live the long such, haul. Yeah, they live such a long time. What about some of the new techniques that we're starting to see, like CRISPR, these genome editing techniques? If you find the gene variations that make a tree more resistant, can't you just cut and paste those in? Yeah, that could be a, a very rapid way to develop trees with resistance to ash dieback. We actually thought about doing some kind of genetic manipulation on ash trees and we surveyed the public and we found that most members of the public didn't really want genetically modified ash trees in natural woodlands they might be happy with them in plantations but not in woodlands so even if we do take a gm approach we also need to have a a more natural approach just using traditional breeding methods perhaps accelerated using genetic knowledge but not involving genetic manipulation will it be fast enough if this fungus is spreading if british ash trees are dying are we going to head for a sort of a a fallow period where there are no ash trees where we're trying to breed enough resistant ones to fill the gaps we are likely to see a very significant reduction in our ash populations but given that there are british ash trees that do seem to be able to survive i think in the long run we will still have ash in our landscape. One thing we have to be particularly careful about is it's very tempting for people to chop down ash trees when they don't need to be chopped down. So, for example, if there's an ash tree that's dying next to a road, a local council will will need to cut down that tree because it could be a risk to, to life. But when they do that, when they've got the road closed, they'll be very tempted to chop down all of the ash trees on that stretch of road just to because they'll think they're saving themselves money in the long term. But in fact, they could be taking out some of the trees which have resistance, which would actually survive and continue to enhance the environment in their lifetime, but also have offspring which maybe have even more resistance. So one thing we're thinking of trying to do is develop a tool um, so that we can use genetics to predict which trees shouldn't be cut down, so that before a local council or the highways agency or network rails start doing very expensive felling, we could actually tell them which trees they don't need to fell and they could stay there enhancing the environment and and surviving to pass their genes on to the next generation. So tie a little yellow ribbon around them or something. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Richard Bugs from the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month and this time it's Methuselah. Named after the biblical character who was claimed to have racked up an astonishing 969 years of life and is also named as Noah's grandfather, the functions of the fruit fly gene Methuselah are rather more based in scientific evidence than mythical hearsay. The gene itself encodes a protein that helps to send signals between cells and it's part of a family of similar genes that were thought only to be found in insects, although similar signalling molecules are found all across the tree of life. Flies with a shortened version of the gene live around a third longer than their normal counterparts, although not anywhere close to the roughly 12 times lifespan attributed to their human namesake. These flies also have additional superpowers. They can flap their wings faster and are thought to have enhanced sensory abilities and are resistant to various forms of stress, including starvation, high temperature and the insecticide paraquat. The Bible doesn't reveal whether Noah's granddad had any of these characteristics too. 
Somewhat ironically, there is a debate over the actual age of the Methuselah gene itself. Some researchers claim that it's a relatively new gene, only popping up in the last 10 million years or so. That is quick in evolutionary terms. But more detailed genetic analysis has revealed a relative of Methuselah in crustaceans, which separated from insects more than 400 million years ago. So the gene itself seems to be much older than previously thought. That's all for now. Thanks to Sita Nye at the Babraham Institute for inviting me to get involved in the Chromos Project event. Next month, I'll be taking a look at the latest research in dementia. Until then, if you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or just tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and it's online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. And to play us out, here's Coils of Living Synthesis from Max Cooper's DNA-inspired Chromos EP. I'll be back next time for another peek inside your genes. <laughs>